letter sent by John, the Apostle, uh, who was, in fact, bishop over Ephesus, as an area of uh, Asia, sort of modern-day Turkey. He lived in Ephesus. And whilst his gospel, he tells us, was to lead people to faith, it's a right of sin, so that you would believe that Jesus was the Christ, and in so doing, may have eternal life. He writes this letter to encourage people who already are Christians to keep the faith. And he writes to counter some false teaching as well that is corrupted and threatens to disrupt the gospel. So why don't we pray that set and then we'll turn. Musicians have a signature style, don't they? You'll sometimes know a song, and the artist of the song, just by the sound, because they have their sound, don't they? You know an Oasis song, it just sounds like the Beatles, but with the Mancunian singing it. You know a Taylor Swift song from everything else. You know an Ed Sheeran song from something else. They have their distinctive sound, don't they? And John has his own signature style. Jerome, a 4th century church father, writing about John, says that when John was too old and too frail to walk into the pulpit on a Sunday morning to preach to his congregation, he would be carried into the church. And not having the strength in the lungs anymore to give a full sermon, uh, it doesn't get any ideas, uh, he would just give the same simple encouragement, just one sentence, little children love one another. And that is believable when you read this letter, First John, because the aim of this letter is that they would love one another. But, and this is what I need you to hear, what's remarkable about what John does, about this love letter, is the method that he uses to inspire love. Because John does not resort to demanding it. He does not seek to guilt trip it. He doesn't even offer the sort of carrot and stick to get it. John aims to inspire love for one another by pointing people to the love of God for us. And so John's letter calls believers back to the gospel, back to Christ, to walk in the light. And that's what we'll think about this morning in this first chapter. So if you turn your eyes there to the first three verses. And what we see here is that it is all about Jesus for John. Look at how he begins. That which was from the beginning. That is a weird introduction to a letter. It's not an introduction, is it, actually? It's straight into his message. It's straight into his message, which is about a person. Our author here, John, the Apostle, not the Baptist, is the Apostle. He's the Bishop of Ephesus. He wrote the Gospel around 85 AD. And this letter here is dated somewhere between 85 and 95 AD, towards the end of his life, one of the last living uh, apostles in some of the latest work of the New Testament. And Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, says this letter should follow immediately on after his gospel, so much as it focused upon the gospel that he's already put out there. I say all of that as a preamble to point you back to the way that John began his gospel. Do you remember? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything 
made that was made in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I point you back to that because what John is doing here in his first letter is to remix his intro to the gospel. And so he begins, that which was. It doesn't sound like it, but that's a title. That which was, by which he could say, Christ Jesus. The one who existed from the very beginning, Jesus. John's gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus. Then he begins to answer, well, why should we maybe trust him? Let's carry on that first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who is that we? That's quite an important question there. Which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Who is that we? That's quite important to know who it is that John has in his mind who are declaring this message. The we isn't everyone, it isn't all of his recipients here, because he makes a contrast just a little bit further along into verse 2. We have said, and we are giving to you. It implies that they were not there and they are needing to hear this from those who were. The we is John and the other apostles. We know that from how it continues. This is what we've heard, we've seen, we've touched, and we proclaim to you. And he uses his senses, doesn't he? You see them there. We've heard, we've seen, we've touched. That's physical language, isn't it? He wants to make a simple point. We were physically there next to Jesus, enough to hear to see him and to touch him. They were eyewitnesses. John's Gospel is all about a person, Jesus. But secondly, it is an eyewitness account. And he gives three titles for Jesus here. That which was the word of life and the eternal life. And there's a contrast and a partnership because Jesus, the eternal word of life, who was from the very beginning, had a physical body too. That we could see him, we could hear him, we could touch him, we were with him. Because Jesus really was human, he really can save human beings. And that's important to John. And John announces what he witnessed. He says, What well, we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. He is announcing what he's witnessed. He uses a language on the one hand of the court, testifying, witnessing, and of the town prior, announcing, proclaiming news to them. And that's a really important thing, is that the gospel is news of outside events announced to you. It's not a philosophy, primarily, to consider. It is not, first and foremost, a moral code to do. 
It is news of outside events announced to you. And so how can John proclaim this to them? He tells us verse 2 here, the life was made manifest. There is another really important idea of the gospel that John announces, that it is made manifest. And there's two ideas in that word there in the original language. They're of illumination and making graspable two different images of a light, bringing light and sense to something, and a handle that you can grab hold of and understand it. It was made manifest to them. See, in the Old Testament, God is known many times by this idea that he's the one who could not be pictured or could not be reduced to an image. And that is a great and a wonderful and a marvellous truth, but it is not much help. Because we are material beings. And we think in material images. So what is John saying here? Well, Jesus makes God visible. Jesus makes God tangible. Jesus makes God graspable. You can now get a handle and an understanding of what God is like by looking at Jesus in a way that you could not before. It was simply beyond you. The creature to the Hebrews says that he, Jesus, is the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God is like? Look to Christ. He reveals himself to you. And I pray that over the course of these next few weeks, he'll make himself known to you, and that you'll know him, just as John does in chapter 5. He says it's one of his reasons for writing this. Let's think for a moment about the audience here, these first recipients. Many believers at this time, including the Apostle John, have been displaced from cities, Jerusalem and Rome, because of persecution. And Ephesus was a very common next destination for these exiles. But what happens is that within Ephesus, a new generation of teachers is starting to say some new things. And they're saying two things in particular that are relevant here. One, real spiritual maturity, real growth as a believer, comes from knowledge that comes from the Spirit, not the Gospel. That's one thing. And then secondly... They're saying that Jesus, the Son of God, was not fully man because material, physical things are bad. Spiritual things are good. So he must have been just a spiritual being. And I hope you see already here that John in his message, in just the first couple of verses, is driving them back to the gospel. And back to the gospel of a historic Jesus who he saw, who he touched, who he heard. All we need to know of God is illuminated for us by God in the Gospel, not secret ramblings from the Spirit. So John's Gospel, his work, his life, his ministry, this letter, is all about Jesus. Because Jesus is the person of the Gospel. It's all about Jesus, but secondly we see here in verse 3 to 4 that there's a peace found in Christ. We live in a world which is marked by restless dissatisfaction. 
satisfaction with ourselves, with others, with life. And so Augustine's claim ages better and better with every generation. He said, you have made us, that's God, for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And here John's point in three simple ways is to show how peace is found in Christ through the gospel. There's three purposes he gives for preaching to him this gospel. Do you see them? Firstly, fellowship with each other. The gospel brings human beings back together with each other. Conversely. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And there is a surprise, I think, because he might expect that he would first say, we say this to you so that you will have fellowship with God. I think that might be the more natural thing we would expect to see. But that's not where John goes first. He first goes to say, actually, this brings you together and you have fellowship with us. A fellowship in this time in Roman society is a very serious idea. Meant partnership with a sort of shared mission or cause. And it has this idea of sort of uh, patronage and patrons, people who would fund other people to support their work. We're thinking about developing a fellowship and a partnership ourselves at the minute for this church with Aquila. It's that sort of idea. That you would have fellowship with us. And then look what he continues to say here. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Jesus Christ. And we get the bit that we more expected to hear first, don't we? Two purposes already. Fellowship with each other. And then fellowship with God. Because the gospel brings God and humanity back together with himself. And here we face a challenge with the culture in which we live in. Because our world tends to say something like... When I'm at peace with myself, then I can be at peace with others. So what I really need to do most of all in life is to love me. It's my route to rescue. But the gospel is saying something totally different. It's saying, when I'm at peace with God, I will be at peace with others. So I need to love God. Because the gospel is first and foremost about us being reconciled with God, not with ourselves. That is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is not that I'm not free to be who I truly am. My problem is who I truly am. And that I need to be reconciled to God. Because my problem is my sin. Not first and foremost the shame about my sin. In fact, the shame about my sin is quite correct. It's a God-given conscience. The gospel brings fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. Two of the most important verses in the Bible to ever try to understand and try to memorize if you can. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. This is why we went through Romans when we did it together. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Four. He gives us four reasons. One, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, this is the second one, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
It's at the whole beginning and ending in faith. As it's written, it's the fourth one, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. What does he say? Four ideas. Firstly, the gospel alone has power to save you. Nothing else has that capability to save you, to reconcile you to God. Secondly, you are saved by a gift of righteousness that is not your own. Do you see what it says? That the righteousness of God is revealed, or the righteousness of God is gifted to you. But thirdly, the Christian life is always a life of faith in God's ability to save you, not your growing ability to save yourself. It is beginning and ending in faith. From faith, for faith. And then fourthly, you are righteous, not because you are righteous. You are righteous not because you are particularly faithful. But you are righteous by faith in Jesus' righteousness for you. Those ideas are so important. They root everything in the work of Jesus and nothing in your own strength and ability to perform for yourself. They sound like bad news on the surface, they're not. It's the most wonderful news you could possibly hear. It's not rooted in you, but in Jesus. And so, this third purpose here is to say it's for joy. So that, it will probably say in your English translation, our, but you'll also probably have a footnote that says it could also say your, I think your makes much more sense, so that your joy may be complete. Everyone in reality of life lives for joy. And Christianity is not anti-joy, it is pro-joy. But it tells you that you'll really find it in and through God. But why does John pick up these three particular purposes? Because these are not the only purposes that John could give. He could give a sort of another list of a whole bunch of other things too that would be quite right. But he picks three things in particular. John is writing against a group of false teachers, loosely sort of called Gnostics. And the essence of what they were into and believe was they were sort of spiritual snobs, if you like. They believed that they were better and that they didn't need church. They were all about sort of finding their own secret, superior wisdom beyond the gospel that John preached. And for them, the Christian life was about very harsh discipline and separation from the world. Because they really thought that they could be perfect if they just tried hard enough. They're not big on joy in this world because, quite honestly, they're desperate to push a check on the world. Couldn't wait until they could die and be free of the physical world. So you can tell these are very super fun people to be with. But John wants these believers here not to go along with them and to partner together with him and the apostles. And therefore, with God. The purpose of the gospel, and why John writes of it, is to reconcile mankind back to God and bring joy. And then thirdly, you don't outgrow grace. Here's the meat really of this chapter from verses 5 to 10. 
I don't know whether you have come across uh, the character Brian Clough, who's an old sort of football manager. You might not be into sports, but this story isn't really about sports, it's about sort of personalities. He's there managing this team, he has a captain, Stuart Pearce, who's selected for England. That's a very big moment in a footballer's career. And so partway through the week after this, he comes into the dressing room, gathers everyone together, and he just announces with sort of no prior background, lads, our captain's a fraud. And you can hear a pin drop. What on earth has he done? Where's he going to go with this? He says, lads, our captain's a fraud. And he holds up a match programme, and in it is an advert for Stuart Pearce and uh, Sons uh, Electrical Company. It's part of the electrical company he used to work for before playing for the boys. He says, do you mean to tell me if I phone this number, you will come out and you will deal with my dodgy electrics? It's part of my own course, you know. It used to do it before the football, but I've kept it going on because, you know, my brother runs the business and, you know, I pay for the advert myself. Lads, our captain's a fraud. This carries on. Until Brian Clough produces a carrier bag and throws it on the floor and says, if you're any good at that, You'll fix this, or you won't be playing Saturday. And inside this student, it finds a broken eye belonging to Brian Clough's wife. <laughs> and sure enough, by Friday evening, the fixed eye was on his desk. What's the point of all of that? Well, the point was, he didn't want him to suddenly think, now he's picked for England, he'd outgrown Nottingham Forest. And here, there's a group of people who seem to think they've outgrown the church. John wants them to know, no, they haven't. These spiritual snobs think they're too good and they don't need God's people or God's forgiveness. They've reached a higher level. Look at verse 5, how he continues. You don't have the words. It says, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, nobody but nobody is disagreeing with that statement. But this introduces where John is going to go next and the first problem that's arisen. And that's that some people are claiming faith but not living like it. He says here, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, is walking in the darkness basically a way of saying that there are a group of Christians who are simply not living morally pure enough lives and so need to do better. No. And that's where we might misread this passage. David Jackman says, speaking of this group that John is speaking to, this does not seem to have led these believers back into gross pagan immorality, but rather into an arrogant superiority which despised ordinary Christians. We put that in everyday English. Their problem was not that they were prone to live an immoral life. Their problem was they lived a very, very disciplined and rigorous moral life where they thought that they really were perfect. That's their problem. So the message can't be that John is saying, look, come on, buck up, or it might turn out that you're not really Christians at all. That's not their problem. Yes, as a Christian, we should be very concerned to live in the light of the gospel, but that's not John's point here. That's not what he's getting to. So the message to you this morning is not, you better buck up, or it may turn out you never really were saved, after all. That's utterly miserable, isn't it? And surely, if we're honest, we'll all sit here, stand here and feel. I don't know if I'll really mean 
Can I say that I don't sin? Of course I can't. Can I say I haven't sinned this morning? Probably not. Utterly miserable. So, what is walking in darkness here? Well, pay careful attention to what John says. He says we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness with lie and do not practice the truth. What has he said just before in verse 5? God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. What if walking in darkness is more about not walking with Jesus, in whom there is no darkness, nothing but light? Maybe the problem is less here about the moral performance that reduces sin to just being about actions, and of course it's not, is it? It's about nature, it's about demeanor, it's about the heart, it's about your motivations. Maybe there's a group who are very, very moral, but not walking all that close to the Lord Jesus. And so there's a gap between what they say and what they practice, isn't there? They're living counterproductively. It's not quite hypocrisy. That's doing something, you know, intentionally quite different to what you say, judging other people for the same thing that you do wrong, things like that. This is living counterproductively. I mean, Explain what I mean. Let me give you a couple of examples. You know, you say you want to have a better sleep pattern, but then you lie doom scrolling your tablet every night for a couple of hours. It's living counterproductively. You want to have a better sleep pattern, but you live in such a way that it doesn't help, right? You say that you want a six pack for the summer, but the only thing that you're crunching is crisps. <laughs> what you do is not helping what you say you want to do. And that's what's happening, isn't it? They would say they want to walk in the light, but the way in which they live is not helping them to do that. So John explains to us in verse if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, you notice that's the language of proximity, of location, of being close to him, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus is so cleanses us from all sin. The problem is people feeling that they don't need God's people, that they don't need the church. Why does John connect fellowship with people and with God here in verse 7? He does that, you have fellowship with one another. John is being very ironic, isn't he? Because these illuminated, these enlightened ones, as they like to call themselves, these Gnostics, are the ones walking in the dark. And they're walking in darkness because they have separated from the church. And when you separate from the church, from Christ's people, his body, you separate from his presence too. If we walk in the light, he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then he continues now a new thought. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And there's a second problem, isn't there? One, there's people claiming to have faith but not living like it. The second problem is those who would say that they don't sin. If you say you don't sin, you simply don't know God. These Gnostics, these spiritual snobs, believe they've reached a point where they no longer sin. And so John says, no, no. That kind of thought shows whatever knowledge, as they like to talk about when Gnostic comes from the Greek uh, Gnosis, meaning knowledge, whether knowledge, whether wisdom you have, it isn't the truth. 
And that's the thing you're missing. Look at how it continues. If you look at verse 8 and 10 and then come back to verse 9, because there's a slightly different thought in that verse. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We lie to ourselves. But verse 10, if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. You lie to yourself and you lie about him. Because he says, See, the central problem in life is not not being free to be your true self. The problem is your true self. But there's good news sandwiched between those two verses. And here's the place to end on. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There are two pictures very quickly there in that short verse. Pictures of forgiveness and of cleansing. You'll forgive us our sins. It recaptures the image on the Day of Atonement of the sacrificial man. The one whose our sins are named over and is killed and is punished for you. A penalty paid to repair the relationship. The fancy word for that is propitiation. We thought about it through the journey of Exodus. A lamb's life or your life. That's the idea. You'll forgive us. But there's a second picture. I said before that the gospel is primarily not about dealing with your shame about sin. It's about dealing with your sin. But in God's grace and mercy, it does deal with your shame for sin. Because here's the second picture. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that picks up the imagery of the scapegoat. The scapegoat has those sins named over it, but then is driven to the wilderness to die where no one sees it again. And the idea is that your sin has gone into the wilderness and gone out of sight, not to be dredged back up. It's gone. But your shame is dealt with. Fancy word is expiation. So the point here is don't fear God. Or don't fear, sorry, God provides a rescue. But you never outgrow the rescue. You need God's people, and you need God's rescue. If God's provided them for you, you'll never outgrow them. John writes here to a series of churches across Asia who are at risk of fracturing in different directions. Born of the same old gospel, some want to hear something new. Something impressive, something innovative. And along come these false teachers with boasts of visions, hidden wisdom, words and revelations. Spiritual snobs who think they've outgrown God's people and God's grace. We live in a slightly different world, don't we? We live in a world, though, that has a form of gospel that it preaches has a word for it as well. Where does zeitgeist? It means spirit of the age. The sort of rough message that most people uh, pretty much sort of hold to. It has these ideas of salvation, of rescue, of what it means to be truly alive, to really live life to the full. It has this idea that to do that would be being at peace with yourself. As if you're the centre of the that salvation is feeling good about yourself, as if you're 
judgment is the most important. That salvation isn't being saved from sin, because people genuinely, at times I think, really think they really are very righteous outside of Jesus. And that salvation is being free to be yourself, as if you don't already spend every waking moment trying to John here calls these first century believers in Turkey and us back to the gospel. Back to the message that's about how you can be reconciled to God. The message in which you are forgiven of who you truly are, past, present and future. A message which sees you grow in love for others as you see how God loves you. A message that calls you to the place where you will find true joy. So, what would John have us do? Nothing. Nothing but look at what wondrous work Jesus has done for you. And then, look again. And then look again. Walk in the light of Christ and allow his glorious light to cast your shadow before you. Let's pray, shall we? And then we will continue in worship by singing.